0: Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.
1: Ho, ho, ho!
2: Merry Christmas! Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. This is our end... Episode, final episode of the year, and it has become a tradition at Christmas time, um, like bad television and turkey sandwiches, that we do a wrap up of the year. So I am delighted to be joined in studio and in person by Rob Kinsella, one of our the Irish Times Media Solutions, our key partners on this. So Rob, good to see you. I'm glad to have you in studio. I always look forward to this one because um, it's kind of celebratory and to look back, and it's in it's a nice one to do because I think we can sometimes lose track of the great work that we've done together. So first of all. thank coming in and second of all, how are you doing? Ho, ho, ho. How's it going, Dave? <laughs> it must be Christmas. Uh, how am I
3: doing? I'm doing, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Um, how am I doing? i am I doing? It's just crazy busy. Um, well, that's good, isn't it? It is good. It is good. Um, but I don't know if you remember the last time we were here, um, we were talking about the year that was and there was a war, one war. Oh yeah, It was inflation and energy crisis. And, uh, you know, a year later, there's two wars. There's two wars. Still energy yeah. crisis. Uh, still
2: inflation. Riots on the streets in Riots Dublin. Riots on the
3: streets in Dublin. Yeah. AI, open AI. have been following Sam Altman and all that
2: stuff. Yeah, uh, t- yeah it's mad. The world is mad. Um, yeah, it's been a... Yeah, there's a definitely a bit of crisis fatigue kicking in, though, for people. I can see that we just can't deal with crisis after crisis. So, uh, yeah, it's t- it's an in- it's interesting times. But yeah, I'm looking forward to Chris. We Need a break. And how's business? How's the year been? Yeah, it's been
3: a, it's been a year of three. It would be three a uh, thirds, if that's right. The first started the year thirds really, really, or thirds thirds <laughs> <laughs> thirds. <laughs> um, started really really well, um, but then I think from May onwards, you've seen you know, post-COVID, people said, affect this, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. I'm going on holidays. So June, July, August certainly stopped. Nothing happened. Um, September, October, back up again. So it's just really a, a race to book everything in and have a good finish for December. Um, mm-hmm. But the team is doing well, thank God. Um, with the year that was, a couple of young members of staff, the World opens. So are over in Australia and Canada looking yep. ducks yep. Um, but we've we've had new hires we've
2: promoted some people so yeah it's, it's,
3: going well. mm. it's going well
2: yeah good yeah no it's been I have to say I'm looking forward I love I do love this time of year because you you can say goodbye to the year that was and you can kind of start with it on a, a blank page as you will for, for the new year so it's a kind of chance to reset and uh, yeah it's been a tough tough year it's been a long 12 months felt draining but you know we're I look forward with hope yeah exactly well listen rather than using a free therapy session here for you <laughs> and, and I why don't we do what we came here to do so um, yeah I, re- you know we're I'm going to start I- I'll go first um, my first pick that I'm going to go is a big one because it was uh, you know I remember when me and you talked about this Inside marketing project back in the day, um, and it was quite rough and raw. <laughs> <when it> was going to be about. So. Um, and and uh, thank you, Aidan McCullum. By the way, I had lunch yeah, with him last Yeah, yeah. No, he was he was brilliant. And 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 it, 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 it was hard at the start, but like, so my first one is the hundredth episode that we did, which is um, which is a couple of couple of weeks ago. At this stage, went out, and for that, we got the return of Rory Sutherland. So, like, he's such a great speaker, and anyone who who has seen him or heard him you just listen to him all day long but that was a really important episode because I think when we got him the first time he was a really big deal Um, and it gave us I don't know it became well Rory did it so it made it easier to get other guests and that kind of so it was great to have him back for our 100th episode Um, and when I had him back on again he didn't disappoint so he's wonderfully articulate Um, and the clips I'm going to play is how first of all he started off in 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 direct marketing which you know he says that was great but one of the problems was you, you could only do things if you could measure the results so he talks about all that and how maybe we measure too many things I'm going to play a clip about how um he talks about what he calls psychological moonshots and how they're far better things for for companies to try and strive for than technological moonshots because they're far cheaper to do and they 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 occur in people's minds if you will and then i'm going to talk about his worries and concerns about about ai and um and how as most people would would probably allude to that the the best result is human and machine not outsourcing everything to the machine on its own so yeah have a listen to these
4: because I started in direct marketing. I'm really grateful I started in direct marketing because I love direct marketing and I love the fact that you can measure everything. I love the fact that you can test. I love the fact that you discover extraordinary things through testing. But the only downside of direct marketing was that you weren't ever allowed to do anything you couldn't measure.
1: Right. And yeah. I think
4: we've got, I think, I think marketing made a kind of naive mistake, which is it thought, if only we become more accountable and better at quantification, people will give us the money we deserve because we'll be able to justify it. And the, unfortunately, the obverse of that particular coin is we created a situation where no one will give us any money unless we could measure it. All right. And it has become too rational, but that's part of a trend, and Orlando Woods would say the same thing, that's part of a wider socio-cultural trend, where I think, if you want to put it in a sentence, the world is just becoming, business is just becoming more and more bureaucratic. Mm. And you might argue that we've created a kind of culture, which I don't think was there in the 80s or early 90s, which is really about... Um, everybody having to mathematically justify their own existence in the short term every month, okay? It, yeah. it, it's both a short-termist and a, and a narrowness of focus. Um, and it probably does arise out of fear, but it's that kind of bureaucratic mentality which is you don't have to do anything great, but whatever you do, don't mess up. Yeah, yeah. And it's created a kind of culture of incrementalism because my argument would be there will always be large aspects of what marketing does and should do, where the effects, even if very positive and known to be positive, will never really be fully quantifiable or attributable. I mean, the most classic example of that is fame, Mm. Okay, which is that if you are famous, loads and loads of positive shit happens to you, or or at least (laughs) positive opportunities are brought to you, um, which would not happen if you were not famous. OK, uh, you know, in other words, people think of opportunities you never would have thought of yourself to partner with you or to yeah. work with you or whatever. Yeah. People come and work for you for less money because they're happy working for a more prestigious brand. When your chief executive rings someone up, they return the call. OK, mm-hmm. all those things are kind of a product of fame. But actually putting a cash value on that is actually never going to be possible.
2: I I, I recently heard you uh, talking about psychological moonshots um, versus like technical or technological moonshots. So can you just explain to me a little bit about that and what the difference was?
4: Well, Google for a time came up with this idea of 10X or the moonshot or alphabet. If I'm being strictly correct, I should say alphabet rather than Google. And they came up with the idea of 10X, that there were certain innovations which were so significant, not just in and of themselves, but probably in the potential they created for even further innovations on top, which they referred to as moonshots or 10x Mm -hmm. achievements. And 10x was that they took some measure or something, and they didn't just incrementally improve it. They multiplied it or divided it by 10. So the reason Google wanted to get into autonomous self-driving vehicles was that they believed that you could reduce road accidents by a factor of 10. And Google's argument was a certain amount, indeed quite a large amount of progress, is incremental and gradual and evolutionary. But there are these kind of penicillin level moonshot discoveries, and that they then apportioned a certain proportion of budget for looking for those. Now, my argument as a counter to this was that psychological 10Xs or psychological moonshots were actually much easier to attain. Than technological ones. And the point I would make is that it's really, really difficult to make a train 10 times faster. Okay. That was a realistic aspiration in sort of 1841 when the trains were going at 35 miles an hour. Now, you know, getting a train that goes at a thousand miles an hour, you might argue is simply ridiculous. In other words, you have you have to you have to have maglev. Apart from anything else, there's a problem of land based things going at a thousand miles an hour, which is, you know, if they collide or fall off the tracks, yeah. everybody on the train dies. I and mean, we've got to factor that in as well. Now, I would argue that making a train journey 10 times more enjoyable might be comparatively easy and require a remarkably low investment. It just requires a degree of psychological insight, preceded by the insight that time the human perception of time is highly elastic and context-dependent. We, we know, you know we can almost tell that through phrases like time flies when you're having fun or it was the longest 20 minutes of my life. Mm-hmm. And that changing the quality of something, which involves psychological framing, if you like, is much, much cheaper and more effective as a way to create economic value than changing the quantity of something. And so this is where my I hate to repeat it, but the Eurostar theoretical thought exercise came from, which is arguably putting Wi-Fi on the Eurostar would have been a much more important innovation than spending £6 billion uh, making the journey between London and Folkestone, you know, 35 minutes shorter. Mm-hmm. And the point I'm making there is that time where you can either entertain yourself or do useful work uh, hasn't is no different in quantity from time when you're sitting there reading the paper but in quality it might be 10 times better I and mean, the reason the quality of the journey on the Eurostar, i would argue is even if the overall end-to-end journey takes longer is better than the quality of flying okay is because it's one period of uninterrupted time where you sit down and concentrate on whatever you want to concentrate on you know even when it was a three-hour journey to Paris, it was three unbroken hours. Mm. The two and a half hours it took to fly to Paris was basically, you know, to go get get in the cab, go to the airport, go to the check-in desk, check in your luggage, go to the security line. And basically, there wasn't a kind of block of time of 40 minutes or more where you weren't being dicked around at some level or another. Mm. And so, so it's interesting because I think that Psychological ten x's are a totally worthy, very worthwhile area of exploration. I generally don't think we're looking for them enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a lot of fears about AI, um, and I have a particular fear of uh, computers making decisions, which are not the where the decision is not then referred to a human for wider consideration. Okay, Mm -hmm. if you want, if you want my purest take on this, I don't even agree with speed cameras. Okay, I think the way a speed camera should work is it should film the infraction, and then a human being should look at the infraction in its wider setting and decide whether it was actually uh, worthy of punishment or not. Mm -hmm. So, someone at two o'clock in the morning in a dual carriageway where there's a forty limit, this is the case of the A13 going over London. The reason there's a forty or fifty limit is really to reduce uh, traffic congestion it's not for safety because there are no pedestrians anywhere nearby okay now someone at one o'clock in the morning on you know uh, driving along there at 50 does not deserve the same punishment yeah I would argue as someone you know in peak hours basically weaving in and out of the traffic mm-hmm. okay um there are cases and I, I know the people not speed awareness courses disagree with me that you know on one case I got done by a speed camera effectively avoiding a lunatic which I felt particularly resentful about because it, no policeman would have arrested me. They would have arrested him. Mm. Okay. So that business of having machines make decisions without a pilot, if you like. Yeah. Okay. Worries me a lot. Okay. Um, What is interesting about a sat nav is it comes up with an interesting idea, which I either obey or reject depending on my own preferences and level of knowledge of the circumstances, by the way, you know. And you also have to know that, of course, a speed cam, a a, a GPS, a a sat-nav, is biased. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, a sat-nav is undoubtedly biased towards reducing journey time um, and against looking at scenery, for example, you know. Um, uh, And um, so, you know, depending on what you're trying to do with your journey, which is probably more complicated than what the sat-nav understands, uh, you may either obey the sat-nav or ignore it. I mean, it, Now, used in a complementary way, I think AI can actually be extremely valuable in the same way that a sat-nav sometimes comes up with ideas or roots I wouldn't have thought of and sometimes comes up with roots I choose to ignore. Um, and I'm second-guessing what it's thinking, mm-hmm. you know, to some mm-hmm. extent. Um, but I'm also looking at wider contextual things I know it doesn't know about. Oh.
3: Rory, yeah, such a brilliant, beautiful brain. Um, and, and if you remember, he commended us on our 100 episode, uh, remarking that uh, only a small proportion of uh, podcasts actually get to 100. So um, we must be doing something right. Yeah, we must indeed. Now I'm going to go to my first pick. And my first selection is the godfather of effectiveness. Um, he's been around for what seems like an age. He's done incredible work for advertising. Just a really nice human being and, and a great guy. It's Mr. Peter Field. Uh, Peter talks about the 60, 40, a long and short term of advertising. So you hear clips around this. The cost of being dull in advertising, which wastes hundreds of millions of euros. I think it's nearly 1 billion in the UK. So um, interesting nuggets there. And then he finally speaks on the myth behind performance marketing.
5: So, for those of you who haven't been dutiful enough to read the long and short of the 60-40 rule is about balancing what we need to do for long-term brand building with what we need to do for short-term immediate sales activation. And so, the 60-40 rule was an observation that on average across all categories and all brands, what we found was that the sweet spot was when about 60% of the media budget was put behind long-term brand building and 40% behind driving sales now. So, some people would describe that as top of funnel versus bottom of funnel, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, creating interest and predisposition to a brand at the top of the funnel and at the bottom of the funnel, driving that, you know, uh, click on the website or that picking up the pack in the supermarket, actually making that loss. Um, And they're very different jobs. They work together. They are very, very different. Um, So long term is very much about strengthening the brand, creating those powerful, usually emotional associations that predispose us to want to choose that brand. And sales activation is the nudge that gets us over the line. And just to be clear about this, Sales activation, the short, is not simply about um, uh, physical availability. It's much, much more than that. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you one example of a kind of sales activation message, which has nothing to do with physical availability or a metaphor for it. And there's a seasonal nudges, seasonal prompts. So when we come into Halloween, which is probably the next one coming up, most of us are going to be deluged with kind of Halloween ideas. And these will nudge us, perhaps, to choose a brand, particularly a retail brand, at this time uh, for something to do with Halloween. But it's thereafter, it's irrelevant, and we won't remember it beyond that. And it is a classic short-term sales activation tool. And there mm-hmm. may be permissions behind it as well. It doesn't do much to build the brand. So these are very, very different. Um, so 6040 was the average. We found that at one level some situations, particularly I'm thinking of financial services here, we found it was more of an 80-20 rule. Um, uh, In other situations, B2B um, and, for instance, charities, it's more of a 40-60 kind of rule. It's coming Mm -hmm. closer to 40-60. So, in those situations, more of your budget should be spent on the short term than the long term. Um, And the principle behind all of this, the principle that governs this um, is that you're trying to achieve, achieve some kind of balance between, you know, driving enthusiasm for your brand and exploiting enthusiasm for that brand for immediate sales. And in some situations, it is tough to build that enthusiasm, financial services being a very good example of that. So you need to lean into the tough task. So in financial services, we said up the brand spend. Actually, sales activation can be relatively easy in financial services because of the data that's available to help them target. When it comes to something like charities, it's quite easy to get people switched onto your brand. We all care a lot about these issues and you can have me, you know, you can have me sobbing about, you know, one cause or another. The challenge comes in getting me to put my hand in my pocket and mm-hmm. pull, out, pull out some euros or pound notes and contribute. And that's why you have to lean into the activation piece when it comes to, uh, say, um, charities. And with B2B, there's very long purchase funnels, very long consideration processes in mm-hmm. B2B. So you tend to have to lean into, you know, moving customers down those funnels. And that's why, again, that is more of a, um, a short kind of uh, skew on that but we've never ever claimed even when we wrote the long and the shorter we've never ever claimed that 60-40 was a one size fits all rule it was a it was a nice little moniker to summarise what we were talking about Um, but of course those who who were looking for ammunition to criticise us all said what a preposterous suggestion Mm -hmm. ever generalise about this goodness me and of course we never we never did Um, we just had to wait for a few more years before we could look in more detail and uh, and actually you know kind of nuance the rule mm. but well i think we've done that in, to a reasonable no. degree others may do more to follow so what we're looking at here is when you go down the dull route and one way of defining dull is by going down the non-emotive tick box facts and figures kind of thing mm-hmm. when you go down the way i'm not saying it can't work i'm not saying it doesn't work it's just Goddamn inefficient. Mm. Um, And so we're trying to put a cost on exactly what it is. When you go down the dull route, what is the cost of leveling the playing field with a campaign that takes a real high-end emotional stimulating route. And the numbers are eye-watering. I mean, right. these are big sums of money. So it's, for an average brand, is an average situation, it's over £9 million per annum in UK terms. So, right. you know, right. if you imagine that in the US market or across Europe, these are big, big, we're talking billions of, mm. of dollars globally that's that's kind of being wasted with dull advertising. Um, uh, and, you know, it. it data is pretty strong on all this we're looking now this' is stage one of the project we're going to big this up we're going to work it out globalize the findings
2: it's going to be a book or is it going to be, um, big, it going big, to be how's it, how, how are you going oh, to oh gosh now we're
5: only just starting work oh, on really. that it'll certainly be a it'll certainly be some kind of road show well, I'll get so you sure I'll get you back I'll get the, I'll get the three
2: years on now I'll get the three years on now when, when you're ready to come on and talk about that, well, that sounds I, really
5: interesting yeah I want us to do I want us to do dull conferences I want I want people to come along to learn how, how to be dull yeah because <laughs> I think it'd be great fun it? <laughs> absolutely you know, we spend our lives going to conferences where they've done their utmost to make it exciting with sexy music and yeah. great.
2: Well, I what like to think I like to think
5: that was the opposite.
2: I like, like to think this podcast is one of the dullest podcasts around about marketing. <laughs> so I, I think I think um yeah we we've 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 achieved something
5: here today. The standard pushback is, you know, but what about all these brands, you know, Uber, what about uh, mm. yeah, yeah, uh you know all of these big tech brands that are out there, um, Elon Musk's various ventures, they all they yeah. all were great successes without spending a, a dollar on advertising. Mm. So surely that disproves it. And in fact, you know, our data looks at this and does examine it. And what we what we've identified is that when you've got a startup, and particularly if it's a very innovative startup, it is true to say that you can get away without um, uh, spending money on brand building. If you, you know, if you invest in performance marketing, of course, this has been the big tool for most startups. Um, you know, they it's very seductive because there's 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 you can scale it as you want you start out with you know uh, a few thousand euros for your first you know first month or so and you get some business off that and you scale it up so you can scale it easily as you build there's no requirement for a big one off bang investment in building your brand so it's very seductive it's a great route for startups and I'm not criticizing mm-hmm. it for a moment but there comes a point with all startups where they reach a scale or reach a size when the growth dries up and mm. when performance marketing on its own, unaided, by uh, brand building just starts to become prohibitively expensive. And we there are plenty of case studies of this. Uh, the, the Gusto case study is a lovely one. Maybe talk about that in just a sec. There is an inflection point where the growth will will start to dry up if you don't start investing in the brand. And so, you know, we, we found Amazon, you know, the world's biggest advertiser. Jeff Bezos, when he started that company, regarded advertising as a kind of loser's, losers yeah. tool. Um, you know Elon Musk ditto he's yeah. now beginning to think about advertising and discounting it, as well
2: he is and, and yeah.
5: oh, bloody hell, absolutely you know all of these things that, yeah. um, so there comes a point in all brands it doesn't matter how stellar how fantastically successful they are once the comp- competition starts to level the playing field and you simply don't have if you like the virality of your innovation anymore because it's kind of been parried mm. um, in the case of Elon Musk the big German companies are Piling in there, um, you know VW is already, you know, kind of outselling in volume, and the Chinese are, are you know, are in grave danger of eating his lunch. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, there comes a point when you've just got to start investing in the brand, and you know, it's not good enough just to say, well, the brand is Elon. I mean, Elon's mm-hmm. quite polarizing, isn't he? I think it's a bit funny. Yeah. So you've got to, you've got to build something that you can commercially exploit properly, and that's what these brands find. But it has led a whole bunch of particularly young digital era marketers digital native marketers to imagine that somehow the whole notion of brand is you know is is 20th century not 21st century this idea of the 21st century brand somehow not needing that it can be built on experience and virality mm. you know, there are some big flaws in all of that thinking at the end of the day you've got to build a brand and that's mm. that's the end of it no brand no sustainable business it's as simple as that
2: oh yeah yeah oh, what a gent Peterfield like I mean not that everyone else who comes on isn't a gent but like he's he's such a gent um, and I, I, I've said this a number of times but I, I'm i really appreciative of everybody who gives their time and comes on but he, he was just brilliant and what I like about him and, and his work was that um, like it has been I don't know it's like 12 years gone now but he constantly goes back and and revisits it because the IPA Database of, of campaigns, award-winning campaigns is constantly being updated and refreshed. And he constantly goes back and, and rechecks his work to see if it's still valid. And it is still valid. So the findings are, are universally true. So um, yeah, and I, I'm looking forward to the work he's doing with Adam Morgan um on the cost of doll. I think that's gonna be really interesting. So yeah, that, that was an awesome episode. Should listen to that, well, listen back to them all. Um right, my second pick is going to be. Mr. Kieran O'Kane, like I I always, I just love having him on. I've loved having him on from the start. He's just brilliant. Um, he's like, he's super, super smart anyway. And he's never short of an opinion. Right. And, but he always delivers his opinion in a very witty and sometimes very blunt way, but he, but he's, it's always well considered and he, and he's pretty smart on it. So as well, he knows his stuff. So I, and he's going to come on again. Um, In the clips I'm going to play, he talks about retail media, which has taken off and we're going to do a podcast on this specifically next year, but it's really grown legs. It's been been huge in the States uh, and it's it's taken off enormously in the UK. Probably Ireland's a little bit behind, so I think it's going to be a good episode when we talk about that. He's going to talk about how AI is is being used for campaign optimization and some of the dangers that go with that. Um, And he's also talking about one of the hot topics that we have as an industry, which is planning for attention. So check them out.
6: The retail media term comes from sort of like um, retailers running ads alongside because they're trying to sell online, right? So I think Amazon spearheaded this uh, new segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon obviously is an e-commerce site that everyone knows and, and uses on a daily basis, Um and Amazon really ramped up their ad business when they started putting ads against some of the, the, the uh the, the items that they list on the e-commerce site. Absolutely, Brant is is sort of like a conservative world really completely blew down the water. I think it's a $30 billion business now for them, <clears throat> mostly running sort of like, you know, um, sponsored listings on yeah. on the uh, platform. Um, and what's happened is a lot of the retailers that have been competing directly with uh, uh, Amazon, predominantly the likes of uh, um, Walmart, have said like we want to we want to copy this model. Uh, so along their e-commerce model, they've, they've listed ads, and it's been like hyper growth. Every retailer now is looking at this, going, "This is a new new opportunity for me for us to make money." There's a lot of nuance around it because obviously, you know, where is that money coming from? So. I think we've moved from just sort of like, um, you know, deep direct to consumer sort of brands jumping all over this to a more nuanced discussion about transitioning uh, trade budgets, you know, the, the the things that you talk about point of sale, shelf, uh, yeah. advertising, et cetera, into the, the digital ecosystem. So we're talking about billions and billions of. of Dollars and pounds and euros into this new sort of digital ecosystem. So, you know, Tesco's here in the UK as the sales are investing very heavily in this. So, what they see is an opportunity to kind of like amp the money they get from the trade sales, so they can get more money that way. Uh, so, 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 so it's like, how can I? How, because there's only there's only a finite amount of space you have within a store to yeah. sell specific marketing. Opportunities and the trade budgets a trade sale uh, budget perspective. So it's it's them thinking, oh well, well, there's infinite space on my e-commerce site, right? Because yeah. I have millions and millions of people um, using this on a, on a, on, a, on a monthly basis. Um, but that, but there's been it's been sort of this slow transition, right? So ad tech have been super excited about this because oh, we're, this is sort of what we're doing. You know, serving ads on pages, and we can use programmatic opportunities. But there's a couple of things that the retailers are very keen uh, to protect, and, and 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 I'm very keen not to sort of rock the boat in terms of like upsetting users. So one yeah. is obviously data, right? Mm-hmm. They have to be super careful about leaking that data, which is a big asset for um, a lot of these retailers, right? The the kind of like customer data, transactional data. That's their that's their like DNA to to build uh, increase market share and build new products, etc. Mm-hmm. And the other one is use experience. Like so, you know, if you're going on trying to buy some shampoo on done stores or some cornflakes or whatever you're in your daily your weekly shop, the last thing you want to see is bloody outstream ads and pop-ups yeah. and all sorts of shit like that. So there's, there's there's a certain amount of nuance going on in that, right? So you have that on the on the sort of like retailer side I and mean, there's big investments going on car four have invested a lot of money into this they're the, the huge european um retail outlet um obviously tesco's are investing very well done humby has that they're all investing very heavily but they're mm-hmm. very careful about how they're rolling this out. there's a couple of people who are talking about this is not always the, good to get the ad tech perspective it's very good to get the consultancy perspective as well who work closely saying that they're very, they, they, you know, the people who run the site and their, their main objective is to sell goods. It's they don't want to upset the user yeah.
2: experience. Tell me what it is and and explain what a blind network is, if you if you wouldn't mind, just for context.
6: So Google launches a product called Performance Max and it's been out for a while. And what it is, basically, uh, it's a, I don't know whether it's on Google, I think it's on Google Ads and you basically just, Commit spent with you. You put your CPA cost per acquisition now, or whatever the KPI is, and then Google run the campaigns across YouTube, uh, across uh, ads. Sorry, sorry, across Maps. All its all its utility sites, and then it, it also runs it across GDN, which is basically the Google uh, Display Network of two million sites. That could be any site in the world. Yeah, it doesn't give any brand uh, verification doesn't give any measurement, it just basically delivers on a specific KPI. So if you imagine just giving money to Google, and Google just going, well done. Now, Google can tell you whatever success it is, because it's basically Google marks the homework, uh, it writes the homework, it marks its yeah. own homework, and then delivers results and at the same time, it gives itself a pat in the back, right? So you literally are doing, it, it, a blind network is you have no idea where it's running. You have no idea what, what the measurement is. You've no idea what the tar- targeting capabilities are. You just have an outcome. Now, to some small advertiser, that suppose that is a good thing. But if you're a brand of certain size, it is absolutely crazy to be doing this.
2: Nuts. Yeah. yeah.
6: Because you have absolutely no idea Dave, where it's running. It can be running against all sorts of dog shit UGC on YouTube. It can be running against any crap site like two million sites, you know of that two million, the vast majority of that two million are rubbish
2: sites. Yeah. yeah.
6: Um, probably like riddling fraud, all sorts of like politically uh unsafe content. Yeah. So so Google basically have just created the greatest black box solution ever in ad tech.
2: And you don't get so am I right like that that does a lot, well, Google have have gamed the system. And you could argue Amazon can game the system as well. So if you're trying to compete with Amazon, sell some stuff on Amazon, they they get a look at everything that's working and they just rip off your products. They get all the insights. So effectively Google can, well, this is a way of Google Google just gaming the system in, in, in their huge walled garden ecosystem. So they can do whatever. But, you, but am I right in saying you don't, as an agency or an advertiser, you don't get any visibility on you know, what creative is working, what platform is working, where things came from. You just get... so. Outcomes, outcomes,
6: outcomes. That's it, and it's uh, it, it's all based around their artificial intelligence. And to be honest, with you look. I'll tell you this now, right? Google have basically have built their entire empire and display on last click attribution. Yeah. Uh, and this is literally playing Google's game, uh, and I would I would I would bet serious money with you, Dave, that they are just retargeting users using Google data, right? And it's just like bottom of the fold, target, target, target. they just sit there and they're like, they're a bit, it's a bit like Gary Lineker, right? Goal hanging, right? He never really did anything else except goal hanging. scored like, you know, an amazing amount of goals. So yeah. basically performance max is the Gary Lineker of ad
2: tech. Right. Okay. That's, that's a good way. That's a nice way of putting it. So, well, well, let me, right, because you said, them, and we I don't know whether you said it when we were talking or whether before we started recording, like the markets will always find a way. So let me play devil's advocate for a second. So if Advertising is a means to an end, right? So you want to sell, or you want to acquire customers, or you want to. So, I mean, the the purest says, well, you know, the art of planning. And if you want to get, if you want to get into brand building stuff, that's fine. But if you're if you're if, at the lower end of the funnel. What? Who cares then? And I'm I'm not saying this is my point of view. I'm just going to give you maybe a, a devil's advocate. So who cares? Give Give Google a chunk of money. Give them a CPA that you're happy with, and then say yeah, off on. you go, lads. What's the problem?
6: That's true, but it's it's according to Google's attribution model, right? That's that's the problem, right? They control every part of the the nuance here. Like you don't have any uh, say on what that attribution model looks like, right? So Google could be sitting at the bottom of the phone and takes all the credit. For for like, like performance
0: exists right.
6: it does not exist in a vacuum. It has to have some brand or some prospecting happening. You just don't, you know, you just don't get customers off the back of it. It's a very very short lived thing. Mm. Um, so your the return on investment spend could be huge, but like you no, know, also you've no idea how much margin Google's making. I mean, do you do you really care? I suppose. Well, that's the
2: thing. No, like, I mean, the, like, no, I mean, the, you you shouldn't. But you saw it with. Um... With programmatic, even at holding companies, where when clients, you know, if you said to a client, we'll reduce your, your spend and increase your acquisition, and we'll run it through our, our trading desk, but but they're not happy when you're making a margin on that one, right? So it happens on agency side. So, but they're, they're more yeah, but forgiving on the owner side.
6: I, I think there's a place for this. But, but that's what like I was going to say. But if, you, but if you have a certain size of budget, right? Mm. Like if you're a certain size, you wouldn't be crazy to put money into that because. All you really do is catalyzing your own media plan, yeah. right? I know they're doing massive they they're, they're doing massive stuff with Dentsu yeah. uh, globally. So like that's one of the biggest clients, and also to work with IAS. Now, for me, when I think about attention, I think about when you have a landscape where you have no cookies, no IDs, no way to scale those sort of ID solutions. Attention becomes a a, a metric that you can measure multi-channel, right, omni-channel um, and it's the ability to sort of like deliver that in, in the new world, right, and we get away from this um, last click attribution that Google kept bel- forced fed bel- us for like the guts of like 20 years, right, and that it underpinned a lot of programmatic yeah. to its detriment. Now we're heading into an era of like, you know, particularly with CTV, it's difficult to measure a lot of that stuff. Attention sort of allows you to do a lot of that, um, uh, in gaming advertising, which which has got massive uh, uh, engagement from a user perspective, lots of different uh, ad tech companies serving ads, but no way to measure. Yeah, attention is another way to do that. So for me, I think of attention as as the sort of the post-cookie, post-ID uh, uh, framework for yeah. for measurement.
2: Yeah,
6: um, and I think it's a good way to do it because I uh, mean, you know, how how do you how how do you sort of countenance last click attribution that's, that's being gained by everybody, like, yeah. you know? Um, so I think it's for me, it's a very very exciting year ahead for that specific. And I think Amplified Intelligence is going to be one of the players as well. But yeah. I think there be mul- I think the market is so big. There's going to be multiple players. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. And
2: uh, go on, say.
6: No, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the opportunity here, like because we're moving. I think that this is a good. Uh, uh, indication that as an industry we're starting to move mentally into the post the privacy first world.
3: Yeah, Kieran O'Kane, friend of the show and a friend indeed. I mean, I remember the very first time he came on the episode. And we met him around the hotel around oh, the yeah. for lunch, yeah. for breakfast actually. And uh, we came in and, and as you say, he has his parachute ready to go. No, I had to go in an hour, <laughs> lads. I had to go. I can't hang around. Yeah, we had to, kick, we we, get rid of- we had to kick him out <laughs> after about two hours. Great guy. I've since been over to his ATS in London, which is a brilliant conference he puts on. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get him on in the new year. Um, my second pick is the Diamond Geezer himself, Del Boy from Peckham, Mr. Dave Trott. Dave chats about uh, first principle thinking, always asking why, which I think is very important. And then he talks about presenting just one solution to clients, which I think is really, again, really, really important. And uh, listen back and referring to Steve Jobs, it's just this great stuff in there. And then he finally ponders, is advertising out of touch with reality today?
7: How do we do that? Now, first principles thinking was a guy called uh, GK Chesterton, I think it was G.K. Chesterton. Well, they call it just Chesterton's Fence anyway, which is if you bought a piece of land and there's a fence down the middle of it and you think, oh, I don't want that, I'll get rid of it, you shouldn't tear it down until you know why it was there. Right. The, so that's with everything. You don't write an ad unless you know why you're writing an ad. You don't just sit there like a manual labourer on a conveyor belt waiting for a brief to come along and the brief's done all the work and tells you what to do and all you do is write a pun and that's that, next job. That's that's not thinking. That's not first principles thinking. The story Chesterton tells is there's all these people in a little village and they, there's this street lamp and they want to pull it down. And an old man comes along and says, um, hang on, before you pull the lamp down, the street lamp down, let's think about why they put it up. And everybody all says, oh, shut him up. We don't want to listen to him. So they don't listen to Chesterton and they pull the lamp down. And now they want to discuss what they do, and some of them want the lamp because what wanted the lamp down because they hate the designs, some of them because they want to sell the metal, some of them because they think it blocks the street, and now they want to discuss it, but they can't because now it's dark. Right. Because the lamp's gone. Yeah. If they listen to the man, why do you think they put the lamp there? Yeah. Yeah. And we don't do that. We don't never ask the question why. And then I did a campaign. And John Webster said, uh, I really like your campaign. I like your campaign better than mine. So let's take your campaign. And uh, he said that. And the account man said, no, we've researched uh, your campaign, John. We want to take your campaign. And John said, yeah, but Dave's is better. We ought to take Dave's. And um, and then Stanley Pollitt said, "Um, no, we think John's is better. We're taking John's. And John said, well, all right, why don't you take both? show showed a client. And Stanley Pollitt, and this isn't a planner, remember, when mm. good planners, this is good planners. Stanley Pollitt said, no, that's an amateur thing to do, to take two campaigns to the client. That's what the bad agency does, take along a bag full of campaigns and yeah. let the child choose. No, we'll take one campaign and we'll we'll show that and we'll sell that to the client as our best. And um, They argued and argued and argued and all not. And in the event, Stanley Pollitt gave in and they took John's campaign and my campaign. It was the first time they'd ever taken more right. than one campaign because Stan and they, Stan, he, Stanley, never did it again, and he wouldn't do it again. Uh, and that's a planner, yeah. Stanley Bullet, the guy who invented planning, saying he wouldn't take more than one campaign. It was unprofessional, and it was making the client be the creative director. Right. And he said, "It's then it's like pick and mix. It's like self-service. Why do you need us if we can, all we all you need is us just to crank out a load of stuff, show it to the client, and let him pick what he wants." Yeah. And it's amateurish and we don't do that. You, you had people with strong visions of what their agency was going to be and a pride in what they were doing. What you don't have now is a pride in anything but making money. Mm. Yeah. Which is why you'll go down. The easiest thing is to have five campaigns and show the client the five and we'll make a recommendation but we'll let the client choose. Yeah. Because you want the money. Yeah. If you only go along with one, the client's going to say, well, where's the other four? Then you're going to all oh, blind me. We might lose the client. We better quick crank out two or three more campaigns, just in case. Well, you know, you you become a supermarket. Yeah,
2: yeah, and it, it and it's, it it is. I don't know who said before. Like it's probably advertising is one of the only kind of creative industries where that happens, where you can win with lots of different things. You don't get artists doing well, it. Insane. You know that.
7: You know that Steve Jobs story when uh, Steve Jobs, um, who and he was uh, he, he'd left um, Apple the first time. Yeah started his new company called Next, and he wanted a logo. And he read the best designer uh, is uh, over there. Uh, And he had got, I forget the guy's name now, Bob Gill or Bob Gage or something like that, the best designer anyway, top designer in America, the guy who'd done IBM and everything. He got him down and uh, he briefed him on everything he wanted And the guy did a very expensive designer. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Steve Jobs said, okay, so uh, you'll come back to me with some recommendations in a month. And the guy said, no, sorry, Steve, you haven't understood how it works. I don't come back to you with recommendations. I come back to you with a solution. That's what you pay me for. I'll see lots of recommendations. I'll see six or seven, but you'll only see one. You pay me to do it. I give you the answer, and whether you use it or not is up to you. But you pay me to do it, and I give you the answer. Right. Uh, and, and Steve Jobs had never had anybody talk to him like that before. Oh, and he used to buy and the guy did next. Right. Uh, and, but the guy's attitude was, I'm I'm like a doctor. You don't come to me and I'll give you five options of what's wrong with you and you pick <laughs> the one you want. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. And if you don't like it, you go to another doctor.
2: Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Do you think advertising is out of touch with reality today?
7: Oh, mate, the… I mean what happened when go go goes wrong when you start bringing in everybody from university if in the old days I was talking to uh, some of the guys about it you know't got guys like Charlie Sarchi Frank yeah. Lowe, me they, they came from the post room they didn't go to university and and you get in at the post room and you work your way up from there and uh you look at some of them some of them some of the media great guys the, um um I don't know how well you know I mean you talk about creativity amongst media guys uh Guys like Mike Yerushin, real. I mean, creativity that you, you guys in the creative department sit down and look at, and, and you you sit in all media creativity is is. Uh, I've won DNA awards where the real creativity came from the media department. You know, right? Yeah. And guys like Mike Yerushin. They they all start in the post room yeah. and work their way up because they're thinking all the time, what can I do here that I'm not allowed to do. What can I do? And when you get guys from university in, they're thinking, "What am I supposed to do?" Yeah. And the guys you want are the ones that come in thinking, "What can? What can? What, can, what am I not supposed to do? How can I get out of the post room and get into a job as, yeah. a, as an account man? And how can I get out from being an account man, getting to be a chief exec? And how can I get from being a chief exec to own my own agency? Mm-hmm. And how can I get to own the biggest account that there is in the country? And you guys like that operators who are always thinking." One step up and one step up. And that's what it doesn't matter what department you're in, those are the mm. guys you want. Mm. You can you know, just because you're co-creative doesn't mean you're creative. But most of those guys are thick as a brick anyway, but they're, they're in every department they are. You, you you want the operators, and it doesn't matter yeah. what you are. That's what I always found. You'll find it, in my opinion, creatives get on with media blokes better than they do with account men or planners because they're all kind of operators.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
7: True, and, true, and 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 it's not about um, what you learned at university, how to write a thesis. It's how can I how can I get one over on the competition?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, he was great. I was I was really nervous talking to him. I don't know why. He's kind of a bit intimidating because he's a you know yeah, yeah. yeah. we called you out oh, on it started, something. It started, it started off. I said, well, look, you're 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 very creative and you're a great writer and he goes I'm not a creative and I'm not a writer and I was going well this is going well this yeah. is a great start so yeah. but he was he was lovely he was really um his blog by the way if anyone's listening his blog is great you should read you should read it it's it's really good um yeah he just and he talks about something that comes up a lot which is and it's an uncomfortable truth for 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 some people I think is that we make things unnecessarily complicated we do um at times and there's a comfort in that because it looks like but we're we're just afraid to keep things simple so yeah he was awesome really good um my third one isn't from the land of celebrity, but it's something that I think it was just a really interesting topic because there's, there's been a debate about research, like Bill Burnback, even back to the days of Bill Burnback, and even and John Hegerty, they, they're not really a, f- a fan of research, right? And there's a view that, um, why do we ask rooms full of normal people to critique creative work, the creative agencies work in, in, in pre-testing ads and that kind of stuff. And, um, and there's a proper debate, but like I spoke to David Cullen from Opinions and and he he made the point about the importance of research and how it's it shouldn't be seen as something that kind of works against creative agencies very much. It, it can be a complement to creative agencies. So um why we should listen to it like and I, and I think a lot of people don't appreciate that, that the the scale involved in it, like anything else, a great moderator um makes great helps. Bubble things up and, and and get things out of an audience, a research audience that they that may not be coming to the, you know, to the surface that easily. So, but the clips I'm going to play, he talks about AI where where it's going to go and how. Like, do we need people at all? Because predictive modeling and and um, predicting the outcome of a of a election is what AI can do, and it's pretty close at know. So he talks about that. Um, synthetic uh, research I think it's called then he talk, and he also talks in a good way like he talked about how if you frame a question in the right way you can predict uh, you can get the right results so I'm going to play the clip he talks about Donald Trump and how he called that back in 2016 by just kind of carefully reframing a question and and, yeah have a listen and uh, see what you think so back in 2016, when Trump was, you know, and he was a bit of a joke at the start and, and, then, he, and then he became the, the, the candidate and then it was like, this could happen. And everyone was saying, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and all the research, all the polls were basically getting it wrong. And we chatted we chatted off Mike about something and it, it kind of is a great example of that, how you reframe the question. And it was very, very simple. You tell me about that and tell me how you you um, basically called it right, effectively. How, what was that trick?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I remember sitting in a room Full of accountants and calling it that, I thought Trump was going to do it. We asked three questions: the traditional polling question in terms of uh, who's who's going, to, who who are they going to vote for? Secondly, who do you think will win? And thirdly, who do you think your nearest neighbour will vote for? Right? And on b- both of the the latter two questions, there, who do you think will win? And who do you think your nearest neighbour will vote for? In both cases, went to Trump. Not mm. hugely, um, but narrowly went to Trump. Mm. But on the question, who are you going to vote for? Trump was losing all day long. Right. That sort of idea, there's been work done on that by uh, a number of people, MIT. um, There's a fellow called Drazen Treetack did lots of, lots of work on this and carried that thought forward and started to ask things like what percentage of your social circle will vote for each of these candidates and tested it both at local election level and at, at, at a national level. And, I guess it, it proved the point that this works in 2020. Most of the polls got it right that Biden was going to win, but the, yeah. the, um, the, the margin was outrageous in most of them. He was winning by a landslide or whatever. But asking that question called it and called it tight. Um, so mm-hmm. it got that right. Mm-hmm. That approach also in the French presidential election, which in 2017, which was tight, Swedish election in 2018 was tight, House of Representatives 2018 was tight. And in every one of those instances, asking it in that way worked. And I suppose if you think about that in the context of the social desirability of answering, that's an obvious uh, yeah, yeah. reason why that works is the undesirable response. But also not everyone's included in polling. So it allows you to, in second hand. Uh, pick up the views indirectly of individuals that aren't uh, picked up on polling yeah. but thirdly and I think this is really important and it comes on to the role of polling and how it influences outcomes is that people are influenced by their social circle and asking them how their social circle will vote is a good proxy for how they are yeah. um, they are likely to vote you know
2: mm, yeah yeah no because I thought it was it was a great example It's very simple It's a great example um, on, just on that on that point in that election, because I'm gonna pull it back into marketing a little bit. I was listening to a podcast a while ago with, with Jenny Romania from the Ehrenberg um, Bass Institute. And you know, they we we mentioned earlier on they've done a lot of work on distinctive assets. And um they did some research and and talking about success um but in relation to brand identity and and, and distinctive assets. So one of the single most distinctive assets of any candidate in that election was Donald Trump's hair, right? And which which is a bit laughable um, and he's known for it, but it's quite silly. But in the world of in an Ehrenberg Bass world of distinctive assets and um recognizability, that's a positive thing, right? So um and if you were a brand in the how brands grow world, that's a really positive thing because that that he owned that and that came that that was the most easy identifiable thing that came, came to people's minds when they were when they were thinking about the candidates, right? And then I was looking at that and even like the, the very the very simple "Make America Great Again," right? It it was snappy. It was a call to action, call to arms for people. Now he looked like a bit of an idiot. I think at times with it everywhere on t-shirts and flags and ever. But in, in classic marketing terms, this is this is what drives memorability. Keep it simple. Make it ownable to the candidate. No misattribution, and make it very very distinct. Like research and polls, they're they're designed to 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 capture. Intent or opinion or whatever, and and the sentiment towards things, whether it's policy or predict, and, and generative AI can do a lot of this already. So if you think about it, like, like, it could it go to a, a degree where you actually don't need focus. We don't need people for focus groups at all because AI will be able to predict what's going to happen because it's it's predictive and it's generative. Do you think? Do you think you'd ever? What do you ethically whether we would or we wouldn't? But tech like. Would you say AI could predict polls coming up with a, with a great, with a, with a kind of fairly decent degree of correctness? Would, would you imagine? Because if that's all it does, if it goes out and finds opinion and captures and scrapes opinion and and kind of builds an intelligent point of view, it's not just reporting data.
1: Do you need people at all? Well, I think it's been it's been proven that generative AI can, you know, reasonably well uh, arrive at the same conclusion as a traditional poll. But it's the nuance of the data underpinning that. So if you've got uh, an opinion on housing versus health and that's informing your choice in that poll, it fails to capture any of that. Mm. The second thing, if if you're using it from a a data perspective, it needs some data to learn from. What is that data that it's taken from? We have no idea of the foundational material that sits behind it. Um, So I think that it can't really replace, I mean, you also talk about you know the the role of the human in the in the future from a research perspective i mean it can't understand uh context of the world that we're living in here it can't understand the context of our clients the challenges they're facing the competitive market that they're in the curiosity that's required to come up with new solutions and fundamentally for you you know the creativity and that that's there and very basically, as Davino O'Donnell put it, it doesn't have any cop-on,
2: you know? Mm. It doesn't have cop-on. loads on, of people understand. don't have any cop-on as well in the industry, so well, not them back. there are many
1: There are many, many, many of those. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think like on, on balance, generative AI, I know it's becoming more intelligent than going beyond generative, but on balance for us, it really is a, a positive to this point so far.
3: Mm. Yeah, David's a great guy. Um, I've seen him at, I think it was an Appy... Uh, happy event and he spoke really well. And uh yeah, it was great to get him in. And I loved the reframing piece that he done and that bit on Trump, that the fringe, the distinctive assets was Oh, was,
2: yeah, that was I said that, Oh, you sorry, okay.
3: edit I'm, that out, I'm please. I'm great. I'm great. <laughs> uh, okay. So my third and final selection um is someone who is refreshingly honest. Never afraid to poke but fun at the again. industry, not you at all. No, it's Mr. Paul Feldwick. Oh, great. Um and, and on the podcast, over the last 100-odd episodes, like we always talk about whether advertising is an art or science. And I had Jenny on this morning, Jenny Jenny Rumnick. Um, Paul likens it actually to a branch of show business. Uh, right. You know, he doesn't take himself seriously, as I say, which, which, which I really like. He talks about the ad agency process, about having good luck in advertising, because that's what it's all about your word serendipity mm-hmm. in there. Um, and Paul also chats about the creation of fame in advertising, which for me is becoming more and more obvious in this cluttered world we live in that we need more fun and levity from brands.
0: It seemed to me that one of the things that had gone wrong with advertising was over a very long period of time, it's come to just take itself much too seriously. Mm-hmm. And it's turned its back on that whole world of you know, showmanship, showmanship and medicine shows and uh, and freak shows and Fiji mermaids and, mm. and, and all the rest of it um, to say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're, we're scientific and we're, we're serious salesmen and we just give the facts and all this stuff. Um, and And I just wanted to sort of put it back into that context of saying what we do is showmanship, what we do is humbug. Um, yeah, I, I, example I give at the very end of the book, which was a, an ad that everyone was talking about at the time. This is in 2015, but I think it's still remembered in the ad business. Was the the one with um, you know the, the the guy standing between the two Volvo uh, trucks Van Damme. Yeah, that's right. That's the guy's name. And I said, well, there's lots of ways you could explain why that's a good commercial, um, but actually, you just look at it. Mm. see what's in front of you this is a stunt of pure barnum mm,
5: type you know yeah. it's a
0: circus stunt it's incredible is it re- i mean part of the reaction to it is is this real is it not real mm. and that's one of, the, one of the things that engages people in it and argue about it it's the circus strong man doing something mm. <clears throat> you know completely incredible and therefore i said well whatever it is It's actually got a lot of humbug about Mm. it, and that's what makes it a good ad. And, you know, so much of the advertising business that has been successful, ad agencies, um, they're kind of trained to sort of make up stories about how we got to where we got to, Mm. and they always want it to appear to be, we planned this logically right from the start. We did all this strategic thinking and therefore we did this and therefore we did this and therefore we (laughs) did this. And At the end out popped this really successful campaign. Um, And I think they, they, they do that because they're convinced that that's what their clients want to hear. And maybe to a large extent, it is what the clients want to hear because everybody wants that sense of control and certainty in what they're doing. Um, and to, to, to say that it's uh, there is not that degree of control and not that degree of certainty it, it is regarded as a sort of admission that, you know, this is actually just chaos and it's just flinging stuff against a wall mm-hmm. and getting lucky. Um, and indeed, there is an element of luck. But I think it's it's neither one extreme nor the other. I mean, any any pursuit, any creative pursuit, shall we say, in the sense of you're trying to create something, not only something that wasn't there before, but you're trying to create something that you can't even quite imagine what it is until you've done it. Mm. And that applies to doing ads. It also applies to doing, you know, movies or records or computer games Mm -hmm. or a lot of other stuff. And it also applies to maybe scientific discovery as well to a large extent, where there, there is similarly a myth mm-hmm. that scientific discovery is, is arrived at through a series of logical steps, whereas, again, it's much more complex than that. Um, but rather than rather than just say, I mean, and, and you know, to just say, well, we kind of faffed around a bit and then we got <laughs> okay. lucky... Uh, yeah has a slight element of truth in it, but it's not really being fair to what you did. Um, word that I prefer to use for, for the kind of process I'm talking about is that it's emergent. Things emerge. And that that is actually a concept that is quite respectable in a lot of, you know, science or mm-hmm. um, you know, sociological thinking or whatever. Things emerge does not mean they just happened but it means they happen in a much more complex way. They happen as a a whole long series of um, actions and then things happening as a result of those actions and then your responses to those actions. And so there's a continual learning going on and there's a continual discovery going on. That, That early principle of advertising, that it's about mass audiences, it's about making yourself famous, um, insofar as you are going to pay for media mm. pay for a lot of media you know you need to you need to, to, to get money behind it um, I'm not sure that that's being done so much anymore
1: mm.
0: but yeah. um, i I think there's also I mean it, it why is advertising less effective I think it comes back to so many of the things we've talked about it's lack of wanting to be popular Mm. it's using it's not using research of a kind that will help you to be popular Mm. Uh, and uh, it's also it's about having a culture which does not enable people to produce work that is genuinely popular and entertaining I mean, if ad agencies could reinvent themselves so that they felt more like part of the world of entertainment, right? Which to some extent, back in the seventies and eighties, I think we did. Mm. Um, then that might help. Mm.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, he was great as well. He was pretty, pretty recent. He was just, again, just really, really nice to talk to. Very, very generous with his time. And the books are amazing. So, um, Anatomy of Humbug and Wines of Peddlers thing, they're they're really good. I, they're, they're, just a, 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 they're wonderfully well written. They're funny, actually, as well. And if you work in in the industry and you've ever been involved in a pitch or anything like that, you, you, you can resonate with some of the pains. But it's a story people don't really tell, the truth about how things happen and the look and the, the you know, the way we 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 like to pretend that we were in control all the way along. That's the way the award papers are written. but the reality of how things ever happen are far far from. the agencies are chaotic, so um I, you I, get there in the end though yeah, you thing. get there in the end, you have to or you yeah. and sometimes you it's just pure luck um you know, but it, yeah, he's great, and he he really he really does talk in an awful lot of sense, so I really enjoy talking to him so uh. So yeah, I mean, and we've only covered a few here, like I have to say, everybody we've had, we, we tend to, to call out some of the big names, but like some of the con- contributors we've had and some of the, the, the experts in their fields have been have been incredible. I mean, whether it was gaming that we talked to Dara Barker about, or whether it was even um, Viv from Bricolage, Vivian Chambers from Bricolage, who's always, always really insightful. Ollie Cook on sustainability. um, you know, Karen Campbell from Polestar about how they market and they're, they're really disrupting that market in terms of not just the car itself but how they, how they market. I'm trying really to tell you and I bought the car. Oh, you. I know. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't having a test drive on it. <laughs> never miss a trick. Never miss a trick. Also, Paul Hughes, I really, well, not so much about marketing and advertising but I, I, I loved kind of looking into that world and and seeing the similarities from his time at Rothko and um, the process of him as an artist he, he's just brilliant to talk to um, and of course you know I'm forgetting people but John Fanning what, what a mind what, a, what an intellect and what an encyclopedia of like I don't know how Don't know how he can do basic functions like make a cup of tea or open doors because his brain is so full of stuff. Like, it's just so complicated. Don't know how he retrieves anything from his mind. It's it's so crammed with information. And he was brilliant to talk to again. So, um... Yeah, it's been what a year. It's been a huge. Uh, we took a break during the summer. We might do that again. I don't know. We'll see. But we will be back with 20 odd, 25, 26 episodes next year. Um, spoiler alert, Kieran O'Kane's going to be back. I'll have Dan Calladine back to talk about trends. And I have Jenny Romania coming on very early. In, in, Addressing that in, in, gender balance, which we were yes, really looking Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Go on. we've been looking, at, oh, we're look always looking for balance on, on, on this podcast. So, yeah, Jenny was great. I spoke to her. It's already recorded, and that'll go out in. I think it's early Jan as well, so uh, I'm I'm optimistic about the year ahead. I look forward to you know it was a tough year for us. So I look forward to a, a a better year next year. We're a bit more solid. We had a bit of upheaval and kind of difficult changes in staff and things like that in here. So I think we're solid um, and we're back. I think we're in a good place. So I'm 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 looking forward to next year, Rob. I think it's going to be a good year, I think. So what about you? How yeah, are you feeling yeah. and thoughts on inside marketing for next year? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you got to go through those challenges and you know,
3: as I keep saying all year, it's it's chin up and chest out and uh, I'm very very optimistic for next year as well. Where when I look at inside marketing, I would love to see a conference. I'd love to see an inside marketing summit. Mm. So we in you know, we've done some of the work already. It might happen, Rob. Yeah, we're look, we're looking happening. at that. Uh that that'll be that'll be brilliant. Um and as I, I said at the intro, you know, how scary the world can be with wars, hardship, robots going to take over us all and kill us all. Uh, but I'm going to end on a cheery note. Um, I'd like to say thank you as always to our listeners who keep coming back uh, to listen in. Uh, happy Christmas to you guys. And I'd also say, like, I mean, you know, how hard it is out there, hug a loved one, go for a meal with your family, meet up with friends and have a beer and a laugh and just have a great Christmas and New Year.
2: Or, or read a book. Read them. Read one of the marketing books as well. Get you know, invest in yourself. But definitely follow inside marketing. De- follow inside marketing <laughs> for sure. And Aaron Chalk, you can copy all our guests that we'll be getting. Um, so keep listening and <laughs> oh, keep copying. Ho ho. ho ho ho! Have a good one, guys. Have a good one.
0: The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu
1: and Irish Times Media Solutions.